This is the 966 episode 47. Richard, happy early Father's Day to you, my man, my boy. Well, thank you. Same to you. Thank you. Uh, same to you. That's so exciting. And Father's Day is big when you got youngins like that. Now it's like whatever. And also Father's Day this year is another birthday of my youngest. So we'll see <laughs> who really gets who the attention. Yeah. There. Yeah. Well, I don't think it's in doubt. <laughs> Rain check on Father's Day at the exactly. Wilson household. Whatever. Nice thing is at this point, uh, both Jane and I, it's, it's, it's like I got, I got my gift. So I told her I got my gift for Father's Day. Like just, she told me for Mother's Day, I got my gift for Mother's Day. Don't worry about it. <laughs> you know, I'll expect a card and you know stuff from the kids, but don't worry about a gift from me because I got it. Really just anything. And that's a good time to use the line. You are my gift for Father's Day. So that will get you a lot of uh, that'll get you a lot of capital at home. We are both hashtag girl dads, Richard, and love it very much. So again, congrats to you. We are recording this episode a day earlier than we usually do. Uh, Richard, we have a full day meeting tomorrow in D.C. So if we appear to miss some breaking news this week, that's the reason. I doubt it will happen, but who knows? We also will not have a special guest this week as we were unable to make a scheduling work with some delayed flights and a bunch of other things in the air. It's never easy. Um, But Richard, you are a magician. You've already rescheduled it. So we'll be back with a guest next week. And again, remember to uh, subscribe to this wherever you're getting your podcast and give us a five star rating on Apple Podcasts, especially will help us out a lot. Okay, Richard, let's get going. Five stars. Uh, What's your one big thing this week? Well, what's that showbiz adage? Showbiz adage, never let them see you sweat. That's right. Am I I sweating already? (laughs) All the the dancing behind the scenes in terms of booking and scheduling and production Mm -hmm. is is a full-time thing. uh, when we already had our full time thing, the, the making uh, of the lamb sausage, indeed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, my one big thing uh, this month, the Ministry of Investment, MISA, published its investment highlights for Q1 2022. Uh, it's actually a, a good read. It's it's well organized, attractive, loaded with data points, <clears throat> but mostly it's like it's 56 pages of triumph. I mean, this first quarter uh, for Saudi Arabia was pretty spectacular. It reminds me, Lucian, of the publications, you know, like like I have, a, you know, when the Nats, Washington Nationals won the 2019 World Series, they put out a publication, which is a recap of the season, <clears throat> you know, and it's glowing and it's it's positive and it's, it's celebratory and everything. So it, this reminds me of one of those recap of a championship season, which would be in that first quarter, you know, 2022 for Saudi Arabia. It's rare um, for a publication to have a soundtrack with it, and it's We Are the Champions by Queen. <laughs> um, just auto plays when you open the publication up. So, <laughs> um, um, uh, the headline, the headline, there are a couple of headlines, and I'll get into the, the meat of it because, again, it's an interesting read. It's like I said, 56 pages. It's, it's actually easily, easily accessed. Uh, uh, Ministry of Investment wanted you to know in Q2022 that over they saw 101 investment deals worth more than $4 billion. Deals announced are expected to create more than 5,800 new jobs. Now, we know, and we'll, we've covered it, and we'll cover it again. A big chunk of that was a $3.4 billion in, uh, investment that was committed by Lucid Motors to build an electric vehicle factory in Saudi Arabia. The report also wanted you to know, <clears throat> going back to 2021, that the FDI inflow uh, for 2021 2021 was 19.3 billion, the highest in, in 10 years. Now we also know that uh, 12.4 billion of that was from the the sale of Saudi Ramco um, pipelines. Um, 
But even without that, the inflows would have been at their highest level since 2016. And the ministry once you know, reported that 3,300 new foreign investment licenses in the second half of 2021, greater than threefold increase from the same period in 2020. Um, <clears throat> so as we know, the Saudi economy is just busting along. Um, one of the inter- interesting things about the report is they have a number of interviews with prominent leaders from the private sector. So you get, uh, you know, you, you get uh, uh, extended interview with um, head of Amazon Middle East, uh, CEO of Lucid, Peter Rawlinson, uh, head of uh, CEO of Roshan, uh, vice chairman, CEO of Aqua Power. Also an interesting one with uh, Majid Al-Hukhil, which is Minister of uh, Municipal Rural Affairs and Housing, but it's on real estate. I say that because we've got an interesting episode upcoming with uh, Faisal Durrani with Knight Frank, who's going to tell us all about commercial and residential real estate in Saudi Arabia. Um, <clears throat> Saudi economic performance, Q1, Q2. So it, it goes on. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do some highlights just because there's a lot of data points in here. And and I'm trying. It's gonna. I'll just run through them. So, 24.8 percent year-on-year rise in in March's industrial production index. 22 percent year-on-year expansion of manufacturing activity. 26.6 percent year-on-year gain from mining and quarrying. Um, 9,383 new licenses issued in Q1 2022. A 350 percent quarterly increase in licenses. 19 times compared, 19 times greater compared to Q1 2021. Um, uh, 299 factories started in production in Q1 2022. Um, and, and on and on. Like I said, it's a triumphant, <laughs> triumphant recap of an amazing first quarter. Of interest is there's other sections like that, has a, you know, a, a bit. And by the way, it's nicely displayed infographics, everything. Uh, home to the world's largest projects or uh, real estate investment trusts listed uh, uh, funds listed on trust listed on the Tadawo. Um, and you'll like this. And I thought it was kind of funny. It was like a, you know, our top three, our top three selections among the, the latest invest Saudi opportunities. And so I listed three of them. One was zoo development, which I guess is a big part of Saudi Arabia's expanding quality of life initiative. Development in a, of a bonded zone in Dammam, a big opportunity to transport logistics. And this is just for you, Lucian, the Hanagia project. Hanagia. <laughs> <laughs> Which is a, the major mine initiative that's underway. Um, anyway, I recommend it. It's, it's, uh, it's a good read. And, and as I said, there's never going to be, uh, you know, this was the first in terms of growth of GDP is the best quarter since 2011. And we went over this last week, you know, that 2011 was sort of an outrider, outlier rather in terms of actual economic growth. Um, so uh, Saudi Arabia, good quarter. And the Ministry of Investment is here to tell you about it with a really interesting report. Investment highlights for Q1 2022. Quite the quarter from Saudi Arabia. Um, Richard, you and I have both talked about this off the air, but the Invest Saudi team and the reinvigorated, re-energized team behind getting and attracting investment into Saudi Arabia is impressive. And they're doing really good work. And it's it's stuff like this. I mean, this report, I don't have much to add in this situation because the report is so in-depth and so well done that 
you know, it's the type of thing that they can market and say, hey, look, like here's just all the facts about what's going on done in a very beautiful way. It does have that sheen of the consultant vibe to it where it just is ultra professional and beautiful. But um, check this report out because this is really good. There is a lot of new data in here, too. I mean, they, they talk about how well the economy is doing and they talk about flash estimates and stuff, which actually were beaten this first quarter, I think, since the publication of this at 9.9 percent. But just really, really good uh, GDP growth. That is just really, really good stuff in this report worth yeah. checking out, especially if you're thinking about doing business in Saudi Arabia, if you're looking to contribute to mm-hmm. opening a zoo in Saudi Arabia, if that's your sector, um, you know, they, they <laughs> or, talk about that a little bit or mining um, or mining the largest mine uh, potentially in Saudi Arabia. So yeah, there are a lot of opportunities and Richard, this is all about vision 2030, attracting foreign direct investment, um, something they really want. And now they're really stepping on the accelerator saying, Hey, this we're doing very well. Now's the time to get in. Um, this is still at the ground floor of everything that's changing with vision 2030. So jump in now. And this report really puts that on display. I should add, this was, uh, this was published in June early June. So before the, that 9.9% growth, but you know, it predicted 9.6. Also, they have a, a, a section on some of the new, new laws, the investment law and the personal data law. Um, so it's got, a, it's got a bit of everything. It's an interesting read. We will have this report on our website, sustg.com. We'll also have it on the 966podcast.com. If you want to go directly to it, it's investsaudi.sa and just go to the media center. It's there to download and they have a nice summary of it. Just um, if you're doing business in Saudi Arabia or want to, check this thing out. I mean, this is a monster and it's really good. Richard, my one big thing, President Biden's visit to Saudi Arabia is locked in and has been confirmed by both the White House and Saudi Arabia. First, let's get to the facts on the visit here. The official visit to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia will take place from July 15th through 16th. President Biden will be visiting Jeddah after first stopping in Israel. President Biden will attend a meeting of nine GCC leaders there. And Jeddah is the current chair of the GCC, so that end of it makes sense. Now on to some interesting between the lines stuff on this. Firstly, comparing the two announcements or statements from the U.S. and Saudi side, the White House statement noted that the visit is, quote, at the invitation of King Salman and that President Biden, quote, appreciates King Salman's leadership and his invitation. He looks forward to this important visit with Saudi Arabia, which has been a strategic partner of the United States for nearly eight decades. It does not directly mention Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. The Saudi press agency, however, does confirm that President Biden would meet directly with Crown Prince MBS, and that's been repeated by major media outlets as well. So it's going to happen. The SBA also highlights all the issues that President Biden and MBS will discuss. Quote, the Crown Prince and President Biden will hold official talks that will focus on various areas of bilateral cooperation and joint efforts to address regional and global challenges. And this begins a list exploring cooperation on emerging tech, economic investment, space, renewable energy, cybersecurity, climate and environmental initiatives, food and energy security and energy, uh, food and energy security um, is mentioned pretty low on this list and expanding trade and commercial ties to enable both countries to confront mutual challenges and seize the opportunities of the 21st century. Um, Richard, this is a very important visit by President Biden to Saudi Arabia. Let's talk a little bit about it. I like how you did that. That was a nice wrap up. And it's a good, I think that's a good take to, to sort of uh, uh, examine the, the different announcements, the tone and the tenor and the focus and details of the different announcements. 
because uh, you know, and, and and I also think it's important to understand that he, you know he's just not going to Saudi. He's doing it's a it's a bigger trip. But obviously, the overwhelming media focus for this trip is on the handshake uh, between President Joe Biden and Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And, but as you point out, Lucian, and you know, President Biden is traveling first to Israel. Then the West Bank, as the Biden administration is reengaged with Palestinian President Mahmoud Abbas after he and the, the Palestinian National Authority had been mostly ignored by the Trump administration. Um, he's scheduled to fly directly to Jeddah, which is something, uh, and meet with all six of the GCC heads of state, plus representatives from Iraq, Jordan, Egypt, and probably Morocco. So this is, uh, you know, essentially all all of our, our our friendly Arab allies in one place in Jeddah meeting with the president of the United States. And this is a critical gathering, and it's an important opportunity for President Biden to reset and perhaps chart a new course for the U.S. relationship with the Gulf and our allies in the broader Middle East. And you know that is something, Lucian, that obviously we've talked about frequently on the nine six six: the need for a reset, recalibration, and an update of of the relationships. Um, I suspect those meetings will include an airing of grievances on the part of our Gulf and Arab allies. And, and, and I think this is not only healthy, but essential to moving forward. It's kind of like therapy. Um, these grievances have built up and they're, they're real and genuine from their point of view. And, and it's important to share it. Um, the long shot possibility in the outside lane of results and one that many pro-Israeli constituencies are advocating is some move toward normal toward normalization with Israel. Uh, perhaps even a proposed uh, region-wide integrated air and missile defense umbrella that includes both Israel and Saudi Arabia. And I think we'll talk about uh, that a little later, I think also in one of our six yellow topics. Um, my guess is that the win on, on that front, you know, quote unquote normalization will be an announcement of a U.S. brokered agreement between Saudi Arabia, Egypt and Israel on the Tehran and Sanavira Islands. Um, reportedly, this would result in expanded overflight routes over Saudi Arabia for flights originating in Israel. We've done a segment on this, talked about it. It's fascinating. It's, it's underway uh, and hopefully it'll be successfully concluded. And if it is, it is a win. As we talked about, you know, better to be cooperating, better to be talking. It's a nice pretext for these people, the, these countries to be in the room together and have a civil conversation and resolve the dispute. Um, so that would be a win. Um, <clears throat> but let's talk about that handshake. As we know, it is a fraught subject in the U.S. Uh, because of the murder of Jamal Khashoggi combined with Joe Biden's campaign trail pledge to make Saudi Arabia a quote, pariah, unquote. Uh, as I have noted pre previously, my, my frame of reference on this is not the heinous and heartbreaking act itself or the parsing of what Mohammed bin Salman did or did not know. Um, it is, it's really my disagreement, what seems to be a, a, a Saudi exceptionalism when it comes to highly objectionable objectionable extrajudicial cross-border actions, which this obviously was. You know, the murder of Jamal Khashoggi was an illegal extrajudicial act. Um, but when I say, you know, Saudi exceptionalism, what I mean is, if this is a litmus test for not dealing with, the, uh, you know, uh, uh, someone in 
Mohammed bin Salman's position, consistency demands that we reject any interaction or engagement with Vladimir Putin, uh, Xi Jinping, uh, Recep Erdogan, and Kim Jong-un, to name just four. And each of these, by the way, have met with the U.S. president within the last four years. And if we're going to be really thorough with the list, uh, you can go much farther. And it would have to include Israeli Prime Minister Neftali Bennett. Uh, in, in the last month, two months alone, Israel has carried out a double-digit number of strikes throughout the Middle East, uh, you know, not only on Israel's northern front, but according to foreign reports, also against targets in Iran and Iraq. Four Iranians tied to the con- country's nuclear program or Iran's Islamic Revol- Revolutionary Guard Corps have also died under mysterious, mysterious circumstances, uh, all in incidents blamed on Israel. Uh, and this is not a this is not a secret policy. Last week, um, Prime Minister Bennett specifically stated that, "quote The past year saw a turning point in Israel's strategy vis-a-vis Iran. In the past year, the state of Israel has taken action against the head of the terrorist octopus, and not just against the arms, as was done in previous decades." Now, unquote. This is not this is not to you know attack Israel. Um, even though these actions, I mean, are extrajudicial cross-border illegal attacks. And, you know, we may, we may you know, it, it, there's many ways to justify it. There's many ways we've justified in the global war of terror, uh, war on terror, the preemptive attacks. But we are not going to shun Israel. And nor should we. You know, but we have seen tons of ink spilled on this Biden visit to the region already, and it's a month away, so a torn more is still to come. And so my point is consistency and 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 U.S. national interest. And in my view, in terms of a lot of this, you know, the tons of ink and the articles that we see every day, Lucian, um, I thought Richard Haas, uh, president of the Council on Foreign Relations, offered a, an excellent insight in an essay he wrote for The Strategist just this week, in which he states, quote, a successful foreign policy for a global power such as the U.S. cannot choose values over interests. A pure value-centered approach to Saudi Arabia or towards China, Russia, Iran, or North Korea, for that matter, is unsustainable. The principal measure of a foreign policy is that it prioritizes the country's security over its preferences. Realism must prevail over idealism. History suggests that the ability of a country even one as powerful as the U.S. to bring about political reform in, in other countries is limited, unquote. Um, so I applaud President Biden's return to realism. And I sincerely hope his trip brings positive returns for the interests and the security of the United States. Well said. The headline here is that President Biden is visiting Saudi Arabia and that it's taking place between June 15th and 16th. And he's meeting with a a bunch of GCC leaders. He will meet with King Salman. He will meet with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. That's the headline of a very long, complicated, thrilling um, feature length <laughs> story. And it's a very complex relationship with a long history. And I think really you can say four things about the visit and all of them are true. And people disagree on how what matters more than the other. The first is that the murder of Jamal Khashoggi is was a heinous act was a terrible crime uh thoughts with his family and friends and anyone who knew him it's terrible and it should never have happened period second 
that is the number one issue affecting U.S.-Saudi relations now. And it was the day it happened and has been consistent in that since that happened. And I don't know anybody that would deny this. And in fact, in a recent political piece, uh, which we'll get to in a little bit here, Richard, um, Mohammed bin, bin Salman said it as well. Um, he denied having anything to do with it, but he said, I know that this is dramatically affecting our relationship and I want to have a good relationship with the United States and um, I want to fix this. I think three is that if you were to take a survey of the 966 podcasts, 48 episodes and the 48 interviews that we've conducted, the U.S.-Saudi relationship underneath the surface, the roots between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia are deep and they're entangled together in a good way. And I think that's true in defense and security and military, uh, in the economy, um, in energy and tech, sector to sector, B2B, G2G. It's, it's really strong and deep and complex. And it's because it's been built up over 80 years. And I think the United States and Saudi Arabia would both greatly benefit by fostering and making those roots healthy again and working together. And I think for Richard is that Saudi Arabia is going to choose its own destiny, and it already has with Vision 2030. It's a huge economic and social overhaul of the whole kingdom. And the pathway that they've chosen for their overhaul is one that I think benefits not just the United States, but our allies, the West, economically, in terms of security and defense, and I think culturally as well. And I think that the United States stands to benefit from engaging with Saudi Arabia versus shunning them. People can generally agree on all four of those things, and that's what makes this very complex. I think Biden, like you just said, Richard, uh, he is going with a realist tack now. The world is different than he, than it was when he assumed office. So, um, yeah, I think it's fair that we talk about all of those things, and that's what we do here. We're, 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 a, we're an open forum. Um, and so I think that's this visit forces us to really make an assessment of this. I like that. I think those are four good points. And and um, only thing I would add is, you know, my point of departure is same as yours. You know, when we talk, you know, with, with Saudi U.S. Trade Group, the 966, uh, the Sustag Review, all these things, um, are very Saudi centric. And we examined uh, details of, of those aspects that you talked about, Lucian, you know, the many, many sectors and many, many facets of the relationship. And very often as we're talking about Saudi, but the, the point of departure is for me, is U.S. national interest. It's not Saudi interest. Agreed. You well know, somewhere said, yeah. somewhere along the line, I concluded that you know a good, healthy, uh, 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 well-maintained a relationship with Saudi Arabia is important to U.S. national interest. And a lot of people agree with me, and it's been the case over the years. But uh, you know, realism realism uh, allows us to, as 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 uh, Richard Haas said, realism must prevail over idealism. You know, you know, I just find it fascinating in terms of ideas. We we just spent, you know, multiple trillion dollars worth uh, in in Afghanistan. Um, initially, we went in to uh, to capture and root out uh, capture Osama bin Laden, ideally, but root out uh, Al Qaeda, and it was successful. Uh, you know, uh, but we were we spent 20 years there uh, in large part trying to build a democracy and trying to promote women's rights. And, and these things that we believe deeply are important and are important to us. And we failed miserably. 
you know, it's a lesson uh, that we've had to learn over and over, but we seem to forget. And I, I only say that because, you know, realism should have trumped idealism there. We, we, we can't remake Afghanistan in our, in our mold. Uh, and, and Saudi Arabia, as you alluded to, Saudi Arabia is, is going to progress at its, uh, what it considers its authentic uh, uh, and sustainable pace and in the manner in which it thinks is most authentic and sustainable. And uh, I'd like to see us support that and endorse it, but it's going to be unsatisfying for us in many ways. It doesn't change the fact that the relationship is very important. And by the way, I think that's part of the therapy of, the, of what that Jeddah meeting is going to be. As I mentioned, you know, there's going to be an opportunity to air grievances. And I'm sure from the Saudi perspective, one of those is going to be and has been in the preliminary meetings. Why are you not paying attention to the extraordinary reforms that we've undertaken already? Why do we get zero credit for any of this? Even, you know, we, we fouled up horribly with Jamal Khashoggi, who was, a, it was just a tremendous um, tragedy and, and misstep. Um, but you look at the whole, you know, what, you know, the direction we're headed, it can only be considered positive. And you, you, know, you have issues with us in terms of detentions and human rights and religious intolerance. All right, we understand that. We're trying to deal with these issues authentically and organically. But you can tell if you just pay attention that we are trying to deal with them and we are moving forward. And I, you know, as I said, I assume that will be one of the messages. Come on, get up, get current on Saudi Arabia. Richard, that was therapeutic in a way. Um, <laughs> I'm glad we just we talked about it because I mean this is the time to do it. the The visit is confirmed, and so it was worth sort of taking a a look at the state of the U.S. Saudi relationship from sober eyes and. You yeah, know, take just, a swing at it. And it's always a little uh, a little unnerving because it's so fraught and because, you know, the domestic politics drives foreign policy in the states. And and and, and there's some very high temperatures and, and very emotional and committed and passionate people about this and about 9-11 and other things. And their, their voices aren't invalid by any means. It's just a it's just a matter of where you set your priorities and what you think is in the best interest, best long term interest of the U.S., couldn't agree more. Richard, let's put a bow on it with that. And I think we should pivot a big bow um, for Father's <laughs> Day. And I think we should pivot to Yella if you're cool with that. Yella. Saudi in a minute. Yella. All right. Number one, <laughs> the official Saudi press agency reported on Sunday that the kingdom's Ministry of Human Resources and Social Development announced that it will issue a ban on working under the sun between noon and 3 p.m. from Wednesday, starting this Wednesday, starting today, June 15th. The decision will go uh, until September 15th to safeguard the health and safety of working during this, the hot summer months. Richard, it's sunny out here now and it's 1 p.m., so I'm off for the next two hours. Um, no, this is really good. Um, this is this shows this shows a greater awareness for worker safety um, in Saudi Arabia, which I think is important. I mean, temperatures can soar to 120, 120 degrees Fahrenheit in Saudi Arabia in the summer and actually beyond that. Some records are being set. The world's only getting hotter. Um, worker safety has been a concern in the GCC widely, especially in places like uh, Qatar you know, as they build very quickly, especially in relation to the World Cup. Um, and Saudi Arabia is racing to build, build, build right now. So it's good to see them put worker safety first. I think this is good. 
Yeah, I, you know, I put this in there just because of an acknowledgement of reality in Saudi Arabia. This band's been in place since 2011, and it followed other bands around the, the GCC and neighboring countries. And it's sort of a rite of passage. I mean, you know, it's summer when the band gets into place. And, mm-hmm. and obviously, if you're a construction firm, which is the most, you have to plan around it. It's, it's, a, it's a significant uh, logistical and, and operational challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, so... You know, if you're complaining about, you know, if I'm complaining here about work starting, you know, I think Fairfax County is you can't start construction work before eight. You know, someone starts early. I think in Riyadh and elsewhere in the kingdom, you know, especially during the summer months, work has to start early because you have to be out of the sun Um, because it's sweltering. And you look at the and it's, you know, it. It, it it's 85 95 and up and it'll be 85 it'll be 85 90 in the middle of the night so it's and, it, and obviously on the coast and Jeddah in particular the, as they say the the wet bulb index is is extraordinary so it's dangerous physically to be out there because you you know when you sweat it doesn't cool you down mm-hmm. uh we should do this as a public service uh bit but violations of the decision can be reported through the unif Unified customer service number 19911 or through the ministry's application, which is available on smartphones. That's the Ministry of Labor. Um, just uh, good to see. Yeah, read a passage. Uh, it's that time of year in Saudi Arabia where a lot of Saudis are seeking much cooler weather. So, um, yeah, good to see. Uh, good, good one here. Yella number two, Richard. Saudi Arabia is gearing up to host its first ever European film festival organized by the delegation of the European Union in Riyadh and film distribution company Arabia Pictures Group. Set to take place at the Esplanade in Riyadh, the film festival will run from June 15th through June 22nd and today and will screen 14 European films from different countries, including Austria, Belgium, Cyprus, Denmark, Estonia, Finland, France, Germany, Greece, Italy, Malta, Poland, Spain and Sweden. Cool. No United States, but that's all right. I guess it's European Film Festival. So yeah, there um, you go. Yeah, there you go. So very cool. More progress in the entertainment sector for Saudi Arabia. I wanted this in because it it's it's fascinating. It, you know, Saudi Arabia is trying to thread a needle here, where it's becoming more open and and more receptive of arts and and more uh, accepting of of different views. So, for example, there's nothing too inflammatory or too too controversial, although. This film festival is going to include a 2020 documentary uh, called I Am Greta, you know, following climate change activist Greta Thunberg. So obviously that will be critical in its own way of, of oil producers and, 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 and fossil fuel consumption. So it's there. But, and, you know, so they're trying to access this. I, I also want to bring up something uh, in Tom Friedman's piece today. And he was talking about the International Film Festival in Jeddah in December. Um, and he was talking about a film uh, called You Resemble Me, which is about uh, the Islam- Islamization and radicalization of a young French Moroccan woman uh, who died in, in November 2015, terrorist attacks in Paris. And obviously, this is a fraught tip- topic, too, in Saudi Arabia, because this, they've been accused of, of, of supporting or somehow endorsing or creating an environment where, where radicalization of youth is, is uh, overlooked. Uh, but uh, the thing that's interesting and that Friedman points out is that this film, which was aired at the, at the uh, International Film Festival in Jeddah, was banned in Egypt. So hmm. this is so these are things going on in this country when at the same time. In the last year, 
Doctor Strange, The Eternals, West Side Story, and now Lightyear won't see screens in Saudi Arabia for uh, depictions of relationships or 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 uh, lifestyles that uh, aren't seen as acceptable in, in Saudi Arabia. It's not only Saudi Arabia, it's also other, other areas in the region. My point being is this, is you've got to bring some nuance to this. Everyone's up in arms. Oh, you're, you know, you're not allowing these, these, you know, blockbuster films because of these reasons. And it's, you know, and that's, that's, uh, that's criticism that, that uh, has credibility from the outside from the inside, Saudi Arabia is trying to chart its own path and it's trying to open, it's trying to get different views, but at its own pace, in its own manner. Um, so it's just not just one thing. Yeah, one thing at a time. I mean, these films being shown in Saudi Arabia, you know, are European films, creates a bit of a bridge and a window into European culture and society in Saudi Arabia. I mean, I know Saudis are very well traveled and to Europe, you know, especially we were just talking about the heat in the summer. Saudis like to escape and travel around. I mean, they are well traveled, but not all Saudis are. And this is a good window into European society and, and life in Europe. But you don't just you don't just start by doing this and then have all very edgy, very offensive films. You slowly bring in films to Saudi Arabia. Don't forget that films were reintroduced in 2018, Richard, was it? So it's 20, 2018. Yeah. Four years. Yeah. So Give it a little time. Don't criticize what's obviously progress in the right direction, in my opinion. Right. So interesting. Great. Um, number three, the Jewish Insider reports that in its first legislative initiative since its founding earlier this year, the Abraham Accords Caucus, comprised of members of both the House and Senate, introduced legislation on Thursday to encourage the U.S. to pursue a joint missile defense architecture with Israel and the U.S.'s Arab allies and the partners in the Middle East, including Saudi Arabia and Iraq. The bipartisan, the bipartisan, and the name of it is deterring, deterring enemy forces and enabling national defenses. Act advances a priority of building an integrated air and missile defense capability among the U.S.'s regional partners and allies to ward off ongoing drone and missile missile attacks by Iran and its proxies. Yeah, this is something about which most of our defense and security expert guests have talked about. Colonel Brad, Brad Gandy, who is head of Yus Midam, Bilal Saab, Colonel David DeRoche. Um, an interesting development. I also thought, Richard, this was interesting, the bipartisan nature of this. It's not just hawkish, hawkish senators here. I mean, Democrat Cory Booker from New Jersey is a sponsor. Um, the legislation would require the Secretary of Defense to, quote, seek to cooperate with allies and partners to identify an architecture and develop an acquisition approach to implement an integrated air and defense uh, missile defense capability. Um, it would instruct the secretary to consider establishing a joint fund among the U.S. and regional participants to support an integrated defense architecture. Kind of cool that this is coming from Congress and this does build on the Abraham Accords. I mean, you know, as as uh, incomplete as they are without Saudi Arabia, of course, it's interesting. All right. Uh, um, can I go on a rant? Oh, my gosh. Yes. It's a podcast. You can do whatever <laughs> you want. Um, please. Again, I threw this in here because it bugs the heck out of me. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. So this is this is this is an Abraham Accords caucus, by the way, the Abraham, Abraham Accords I have no issue with. I think it's. Um, I think it's positive development in many ways. Um, but this is the Abraham Accords Commerce. It's just passed legislation, bipartisan, bipartisan legislation directing the Pentagon to look into U.S., uh, you know, a U.S. Uh, 
air defense, integrated air and missile defense capability with our partners in the, in the region. And that's, as you, as, as, as it mentions, it, that's calling, we're talking Israel, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Iraq, Bahrain, Jordan, Egypt, Kuwait, on Qatar, and other regional partners and allies to be included within this cooperative framework. But in April, House introduced, uh, passed a bill that requires the Department of State to take certain actions promoting, promoting the normalization of relations between Israel, Arab states, and other relevant countries and regions. So it goes into detail about what the State Department should be doing. <clears throat> so these, and let's, let's remember, these bipartisan, members of this bipartisan committee, uh, especially the Democratic ones, would be strongly urging President Joe Biden to not meet with MBS. Yet they put in legislation that says, let's move ahead and try and support and push, in fact, push, mandate the Pentagon and the State Department to push normalization. And in the case of the, the, the um, uh, Pentagon, uh, regional and joint missile defense architecture that includes Israel. All right. Again, well, my, I have, I, I have a, a number of questions. One is, would these people support, would these congressmen support a joint missile defense architecture among the GCC states? Which is something that, that the Pentagon has hoped for and pushed and recommended for, for, for decades. Or is this a, uh, I think there's a lot of onboarding here with this, with the, because what it would lead to inevitably is normalization of relations with Israel without Israel having to give up anything. You know, not on, you know, if you were to do this, it's, it's uh, implicit or explicit normalization with Israel in return for uh, their defense capabilities, in essence. No discussion of, of this outstanding Palestinian issue and occupation. And, and so my, my, as I go back, you know, we talk about, you know, I mentioned it earlier, the, the inconsistency, the logical inconsistency, the, the double standards, the, you know, the, again, the same people are saying, no, you should not go meet with MBS are saying, you know, no, I, I'm mandating you, the Pentagon, that you should, you should push for a, uh, a joint air and missile defense that includes Israel and Saudi Arabia. You know, I'm, I'm mandating the, the State Department that you should push for normalization between Israel and Arab states, including Saudi Arabia. I, I don't, it just, the inconsistency, the, you know, in, you know, left hand not really being consistent with the right hand, um, it's troubling to me. And this is not to say that the goal is, 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 is not, uh, has no merit. It does. In a perfect world, in a perfect world, Iran wouldn't be, be so obstreperous and troublesome. But, you know, in a perfect world, there'll be a, a defense mechanism, a regional me defense mechanism between Israel and its neighbors uh, that would work and everything. But, you know, there's reasons why these countries don't have diplomatic relations with Israel. It's because of their behavior towards the Palestinians for decades. And do we just move to the next step without... Uh, any kind of recognition or, or um, concessions or, or any kind of uh, movement from Israel on that issue. So what's next here? The 
Defense Department's going to create this report or look into this. Then what? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's mostly posturing. It's mostly, and I'm sure the Pentagon is saying, "Well, yeah, we love that," but I'm not sure what we're supposed to do that. And and you know, these kinds of bills, you know, it goes to the Department of State. And so, for example, the State Department in this directive, the State Department must also report on the status of normalization with relations with Israel, including information on one laws that punish individuals for people-to-people relations with Israelis. And two, evidence of steps taken by Arab governments toward permitting or encouraging normalized relations between their citizens or residents and Israeli citizens. Now, I mean, does does the State Department need that on top of everything else it's doing? <laughs> it does not. <laughs> Going um, out on a limb. But again, this is like returning to our the, our one big thing in the discussion is, you know, so much of what happens is, is driven by domestic politics. You know, our foreign policy in the U.S. has become... Uh, you know, tied inextricably to domestic politics, and you just have to hope you can sort it out and get a good result. But uh, again, I don't, in and of itself, I don't have any problems with it. I just think the motivation is skewed. I think the motivation is to get Israel, you know, relations with Israel and the, with Saudi Arabia in particular normalized. Um, and that's the motivating thing behind here. And, that, and it doesn't, and again, as I said, by the same people who don't want Biden to meet with MBS, um, some of the same people. Um, but, you know, uh, without re- any recognition that maybe there's an unresolved issue in, in occupied territories. Yella number four, King Salman, the King Salman Humanitarian Aid and Relief Center, KS Relief, announced Sunday that Saudi Arabia will provide $10 million to contribute to addressing the existing threats arising from the oil tanker Safar, which is anchored off the Red Sea coast north of the Yemeni port city of Al-Hodadaida. The software tanker contains more than 1 million barrels of oil and has not been maintained since 2015, and any leakage would threaten marine life, regional marine life, fisheries, and biodiversity. If this thing blows, Richard, this would be catastrophic, and uh, damage from it may run into the hundreds of billions of dollars, I think one estimate put, or- uh, 20 billion. 20 billion, 20, sorry, so 20 I was a little high, yes. yeah. Yeah. And um, my daughter is also upset about it. If anybody can hear in the background, sorry about that. <laughs> Coco knows what she's talking about. <laughs> Are you talking about the tanker, daddy? <laughs> she can speak already. <laughs> <laughs> That's all she can say. Just that one sentence. <laughs> um, yeah. So this is uh, the FSO Safer, uh, Safer, but S-A-F-E-R, uh, carrying a 1.1 million barrels of oil. Uh, is moored six miles off the coast of, of Hodeida, and it's uh, 45 years old. It was put in place in, uh, as a, it's moored off the coast of in 88, and it's connected to a pipeline from Marab, which is their oil-producing region. And it once was a hub for storage and export of crude oil, but since 2015, the onset of the, the, the war in Yemen, uh, the Houthis have not blockaded any efforts to inspect it or maintain it. So it's it's declining. It's decrepit. It's it's being manned by, I guess, less than 10 Yemenis trying to keep it from just falling apart. And uh, as you said, as we said, you know, 20 billion, you know, you know, and it holds four, four times more uh, oil than the Exxon Valdez. So it would be catastrophic, as you said. And uh, what's interesting is so Saudi Arabia pointed, they did it. There was a pledge last month, a pledge drive last month that 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 at raised 33 million. They need 80 million in order to get it started. 
33 million was raised. Saudis just added 10. U.S. has added 10. They're about 20 million short to get to that 80 million. And the U.S. has started, I mean, the U.N. has started a um, crowdfunding operation, actually. <laughs> They're trying to close that Kickstarter. gap. Kickstarter. <laughs> Kickstarter, yeah, for, for, the, for a tanker off the Yemeni coast. Yeah, probably, you know, as valid a Kickstarter as there's been out there because the consequences would be disastrous. And certainly when you talk about $80 million in lieu of 20 billion cleanup and a devastation of all sorts of industries and life livelihoods. So hopefully this happens and it can get, it can get remediated. So my question is, and this is going to be the stupid question of the hour, maybe of the whole episode, probably of the whole episode. I got on a limb and say that, um, there's, um, <clears throat> so it's, uh, the, the tanker has what a million barrels of oil in it. 1.1 million. Yeah. Okay. And so if, if it's a hundred dollars a barrel, Not couldn't the, you take the oil out and sell it? I'm sure the oil, I don't know. Has it gone bad? Is it, you know, does it, I don't know, but good it seems like maybe, you know, that could be something. I don't presumably, know. Presumably it could be put to market. You know, maybe that should be, uh, you know, maybe that's, you know, when you do a crowd, when you do a Kickstarter, don't you get some, something get of value? Little. So if you put in, <laughs> I want to buy, I'm going to give a hundred bucks. I want a barrel of oil. Yep. You get a little like, you know, souvenir jar in remembrance of your generosity um, <laughs> no. of that oil. Um, I want something I can, I can turn a profit on. <laughs> um, I, what would happen with the oil when they took it out? Would they then get it? I guess they'd probably get it to market well, if it's still good. It, but. You know, it, it's it's Yemeni property, so presumably they would take it. And, and but again, what's the you know the the, the uh, recognized government of Yemen is no longer on seat. So it, you know, there you go. There's another there's another international question for you. You know, whose property is it, mm-hmm. and do the Houthis have a right to it? Uh, you know, and if there are revenues from it, are they put into escrow for whenever a, a, a duly elected and legitimate government is put in place in Yemen? So, uh, why did you go off down that wormhole? <laughs> okay, <laughs> it'll be a great weekend. Other than that. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think it's also interesting. I mean, to me, just like looking back at this, and we've been following this a little bit, Richard. The eighty million dollars for the whole international community to come up with. I know $80 million is a lot of money to you or me, but that's not that much money to avoid a potentially expensive catastrophe. And it's not just the cost of the catastrophe, it's the environmental impact, which would just be such bad PR for everyone involved. And so I just, um, it seems like they should, you know, I'm rooting for them to get this thing dealt with because it would really suck if they just, you know, let it go down, didn't raise the minimal amount of money to get it taken care of. And then it just starts leaking oil everywhere. I get the impression there's uh, it's, it's headed in the right direction. People are motivated. Mashallah. Mashallah. <laughs> um, was that you or me? This is number um, five. 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 This is you. Saudi Arabia has closed its registration for domestic pilgrims who wish to perform Hajj. The more than 390,000 applicants will now wait on the results of a lottery to learn if they have been selected. Hajj authorities opened registrations for domestic pilgrims this month as the kingdom lifted restrictions on participation that were imposed in the past two years in response to the coronavirus pandemic. Priority will be given to candidates who have been fully vaccinated against the coronavirus and have not performed the Hajj before, which is cool. Um, Richard, the Hajj has really, well, it's been, it was shut down in the face of the coronavirus. It's almost fully back. Uh, 2020, they had 1,000 pilgrims take part. And then last year, they had 60,000 fully vaccinated Saudi citizens and residents. They're looking to have up to a million foreign pilgrims come this year in addition to this. So 
um, it's back. Yeah, exciting. And that's, uh, I think it was good to include it because it, you know, it just, it's the reality right now. This is Hodge season, two months after Ramadan. So uh, it's, it's nice to see it back. Nice to see it thriving. Nice to see it oversubscribed, which it is. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, just another good report in a great Saudi first quarter. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, quite the, the Saudi first quarter. Richard, this is cool too, because the Hajj is, you know, it is big business for Saudi Arabia, but it's an even bigger responsibility for them to do it right and to keep people safe, to logistically get this number of the largest annual human migration on the planet, to get this right every year is expensive for them to operate and very difficult and also a very important thing for them to do. I mean, King Salman is not King Salman. He's custodian of the two holy mosques. Uh, Salman. So it's it, it's just great to see this. It's also great to be kind of back in general. Um, the pandemic was difficult on everybody listening to this podcast and you and I. So it's <laughs> uh, you and me, I should say. So it's, you know, it's it's good to see little things like that. You know, the the normalcy of life creeping back into, you know, into our I, lives again. So I, I think you're spot on and I agree. But it is also it is in keeping with the, the particularly good economic role Saudi Arabia is in, you know, in, in addition to the, the commodity super cycle, in addition to private sector and, and the, and coming out of the COVID strongly, strongly, um, you know, now they're, they're getting revenues from the Hajj again. So mm-hmm. from Umrah and Hajj. So, so it's another, again, they're in a really good spot right now. They're in the zone, you know, pr- prices will come down and other things will happen. But uh, right now, Saudi Arabia is really, uh, really hitting on all cylinders. Yeah. Um, also, a new Jeddah airport is in operation. So that will help a lot, which is good. The last one was not good. The new one looks awesome. So um, <laughs> that should make it a little bit easier, but uh, good for them. And uh, very interesting. All right. Number six, Richard. Um, according to an image leaked on Saturday, Lucid Motors is getting ready to open a new showroom in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia's capital and main financial hub. The company has currently 19 studios in the US and two in Canada and one in Germany, but this would be the first in Riyadh. The US-based company plans to establish operations at AMP2 initially for reassembly of Lucid Air vehicle kits that are pre-manufactured at the company's US AMP1 facility in Arizona and over time for production of complete vehicles. The new Saudi factory expected is expected to address growing global demand for Lucid electric vehicles by increasing Lucid's global production capacity mid-decade to 500,000 EVs per year, the company recently said. Um, you know, it's interesting. This we've we've talked about this before, so it's all good, and it's and it's it's great, especially if it leads to an actual you know a, a significant automotive sector, which it probably will. Uh, but this. The, the returns on this and the investment uh, and, and the, the production value of this is not incidental. I guess the company right now expects to produce 12,000 between 12,000 and 4,000 vehicles this year, but their goal is to produce uh, 350,000 units a year in the U.S. Once this is up and running, this is another 150,000, 155,000. This, once this, but I mean by I mean the, the Lucid plant in Saudi Arabia. It's another 155,000 units annually. And obviously, as you said, it, initially it's kits, but eventually it's going to be full manufacture. So, so uh, hopefully by 2030. But as, as Peter Rawlinson said, you know, quote, that means we can accelerate plans to produce half a million cars a year from what was going to be 2030 to mid-decade. 
unquote. That's what Rawlinson said about this production plant. So it's it's uh, this isn't a uh, this isn't a goodwill gesture. This is a business decision and to to, to expand their uh, manufacturing capability and and reach the targets even sooner, reach production targets even sooner than than uh, initially expected. What's cool about this story to me too, Richard, is that Saudis are patriotic about their support for anything that really <clears throat> vision that would help vision 2030. And that's sort of a hard thing for us to understand as Americans, because we're, you know, rooting for the success of America as an economy, but we're not doing it through uh, some other channel. We're just saying, well, we want a good economy. But in Saudi Arabia, Saudis know that a successful lucid car and having lucids everywhere is actually good for the country. And, and so it's I, through social media and just Instagram, different channels where I follow a lot of Saudis, um, some are popular Saudis, some are showing off their lucids that they've imported early um, from the United States. Hmm. And those look, first of all, they look so freaking rad. They look so cool. And we're expecting delivery of our lucid at any point, Richard, as you noticed. Um, but <laughs> it's just like really interesting because, you know, there's a, this one quote, I can't remember if it's in this article or a different one, but the quote is essentially, you know, uh, if everything goes to plan in six to seven years, you will see lucids really everywhere around Saudi Arabia and people will be excited to buy and to drive them as sort of a, uh, you know, a token on an investment in the future of the kingdom. And it, I know it sounds like a bit of a stretch, but there is like a pride in lucid from Saudis because they know what it means to Saudi Arabia if it's successful. Yeah, it's a quite, it's, it was a coup to get it. Obviously it was, it was, uh, uh insightful to for PIF to invest in it. So, um, you know, if, if it ends up creating jobs and, and, and uh, you know, setting up a whole, uh, you know, ecosystem in terms of automotive on top of making Saudis proud, it's, it's a win-win-win. Mm -hmm. And I just want to make clear that um, I'm not particularly concerned about the color of the lucid that that I get, I don't know. So you know, whenever whatever arrives on my doorstep in terms of a lucid, I'm I'll be delighted with it. See, I want white because I don't have a water bill here. I'm on a well, so I can just hose that thing down every day. It'll look so crisp. I think white's a good color. A little tint in the windows. I don't really care about a lot of the other bells and whistles. Um, but yeah, I mean, I hope you also uh, choose a color that is not white, so we can, you know, compare, park them side by side. Oh my my um, truck is my truck is white, so and it's a problem because I don't have a garage. So uh, you know, whatever it comes, but again, I, I'll be okay with whatever color. <laughs> they look so cool. Um, I believe it was Wired that said it was the future of cars. So there's no smoke there. It just actually looks really awesome. We hope they start rolling it out. <laughs> you have not seen a lucid in the wild yet. I don't think I have either. Um, I have not Yeah, I would. I would expect you to send a photo to me though when you when you do see one. So um, absolutely, if I could get it. I mean, if I could hear it coming or or it was fast enough to get it as it went by. <laughs> Richard, awesome episode. Thank you very much. We will be back next week. Um, and don't forget to subscribe to this wherever you're getting it. We really appreciate everybody that is commenting and sending us emails, um, getting in touch with us. We do read all the feedback we get. We love hearing it. Recommendations for guests to come. We love all that stuff. We love to see it. We just ask that you are civil in the comments section, especially on YouTube. We are already doing two jobs here. Instead of one, we don't need a third job of moderating mean comments. So just please be respectful of others. Um, but thank you very much. And Richard, thank you, sir. Thank you, Lucian. Well done once again. <laughs> Good one. Thanks. <laughs>